Hey, got a Bible? Turn to Psalm 110. We'll finish this thing up tonight. And uh, pet peeve, okay? Any of you have any pet peeves? I've got one, and it's a, kind of a theological pet peeve. I get really tired of people that act like the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Have you ever heard anything like that? Uh, it's kind of a popular thought, you know, because people read the Old Testament and, oh, God couldn't be anything like that because God is love and He's kind and compassionate, and He is, no dispute with any of that. But they use that to say the God of the Old Testament just was mean. And so we got a new one in the New Testament and we got a better deal. God 2.0 or something like that. They also say, this is another pet peeve, that the God of the Old Testament was an immature God. He was brand new and he's learning how to be God, learning how to do the things that uh, he's supposed to do. He's just not very good at it yet. He gets angry. He flies off the handle. He kills people. And, you know, a God that would be taking his people through the wilderness to the promised land and there'd be, you know, Korah's rebellion and the ground would open up. Uh, you know, he doesn't do that anymore because he's grown up and he's gotten better at being God. And so he is a much nicer kinder, gentler God in the New Testament than he was in the Old Testament. And uh, pet peeve number three is whenever I see pictures of Jesus, I don't care for that. I think it's a violation of the um, Ten Commandments that we're not to make graven images. And uh, when I think about, I see Jesus when he looks, well, a little bit more Italian than he does Jewish. He looks European because some middle-aged European person painted him and painted him to look like them instead of looking like he probably really looked. And the other thing that really kind of gets to me, I get tired of seeing a Jesus who just kind of looks like a sissy. That not only happens in paintings. I remember watching a movie one time about Jesus and uh, here are the disciples, rugged and tough. And they have their, they, they look Jewish actually. And they are doing that. And then Jesus comes along and he's got on white robes and his long straight hair. And he's kind of effeminate looking. Talks with a British accent for some reason. That, it, doesn't that sound spiritual? When you do that, it's just so much more godly and spiritual. I'm sure he spoke like that. And when he got into the boat, Peter, would you help me into the boat? And he holds his hand up like that, like a girl. And Peter takes his hand like this and helps him into the boat. I'm ready to puke right now when I think about that. Because when you look at the picture of Jesus in the Bible, he's anything but that. I mean, after all, he grew up in a village carpenter's home with no power tools. They had to get their own lumber and they had to uh, get it ready to make furniture or a house or whatever they were going to do. Think about what all that would take to take a tree and to get it down to the two-befores or whatever it is you're making that you're going to need. And I get the idea Jesus was a 
powerful, powerful man. And that's borne out because when he goes into the temple to clean it out and get rid of it, he's turning over tables. He's taking whips and driving a group of people out. And that tells me he must have been an imposing figure. But even that falls short of who he really is. Because when we go to Psalm 110, and this is the one that starts out, The Lord said to my Lord, Set at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then we've gone down and looked at the rest of it. This is a powerful, strong, sovereign, militant God who is going to do something that is going to be amazing and he's not going to be a pansy about it. He is going to be tough and people are going to be sorry that they ever messed with him or ever rebelled against him or ever thought that they could overthrow him. And David would understand this because David lived in a time where they fought, they fought hand to hand, they fought up close, they fought to the death. And Israel was always under some type of siege or attack or a threat. And so when David thinks about the Messiah, he thinks about the power that Messiah is going to have. He thinks about the protection that he is going to give to Israel. And he thinks about the way that he is going to rule. Much different than the way that we in our day and age tend to think about God. David foresees a future time when the Messiah will return and defeat his enemies. Because they're not just Israel's enemies. They're the enemies of Christ. They're the enemy of the Messiah. And the Lord is going to do something about that when he returns. Now David doesn't have the book of Revelation or any of those books. He doesn't know all of the ins and outs. Revelation is progressive as we go through, <coughs> pardon me, go through the Bible. We learn more and more and we start putting the pieces together and get a full picture. But we got enough. Look at Psalm 110 verses 5 through 7. And if this doesn't fit your view of God, you need to change. Because God's not going to change, and the Bible gives us the full picture of everything we need to know about God. And so if we don't match up with the Word, we're the ones who are in the wrong. And this is something that I think Christians today, we need to understand and see the power and the sovereignty of our God. Not saying you don't need to know about grace. Not saying that his mercy is not real and his love is not real and his kindness is not real. But here is an aspect of God I'm afraid far too many uh, take for granted. Okay? So here's David's writing in Psalm 110 and we'll begin reading in verse 5. So, the Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute... The word execute there, the Hebrew word means that literally to tear into pieces. Does that give you a clue what he's speaking of? The Lord shall execute or tear into pieces kings in the day of his wrath. You ever thought about a wrathful God? Uh, apparently, according to verse 5, he's very angry when he returns at the rebellion and at the sin and at the arrogance of these other kings. Verse 6, 
He shall judge. Oh no, we're not supposed to judge anybody. Well, God does. And God is. And God will. And we got to quit being, well, pansies about all of this. There's a right and there's a wrong. And God is very, very opinionated about all of this, right? And so in the day, or pardon me, verse 6, he shall judge among the nations. Can you imagine someone taking on an entire nation? And that's big enough, but he's going to take it on plural, the nations. And he shall fill the places, you ready for this? This will melt a few snowflakes, won't it? He shall fill the places with dead bodies. This is a military thing that is going to be absolutely successful and absolutely brutal, isn't it? And it says he shall execute the heads of many countries. Verse 7. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside and therefore... He shall lift up the head. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Okay? Now, what is the picture that you get of God that is so different than what our modern culture? I mean, um, when uh, the football player, the safety for the Bills, um, was uh, hurt and had the cardiac arrest and everybody started praying... Did you notice that um, the ACLU didn't uh, say anything about that? Did you notice that the NFL did not immediately black out everything? Did you notice that it seemed to be okay to pray for people? Because in the American mind and in our culture, there are certain times when it seems to be acceptable to believe in God and even to talk to God. Now, there are other times when it's just nutty and crazy and uh, uh, not appropriate, you know. But there are times when we will kind of give in and allow that. You know, after 9-11, the churches were filled for about two weeks. And then everything kind of went back to normal. And even presidents have talked about God. I uh, heard a recording of Franklin Roosevelt not uh, terribly long ago. Who was actually on the radio on one of his uh, fireside chats leading the nation in prayer as the President of the United States. Mercy. That was certainly before Madeleine Murray O'Hara's time, wasn't it? And uh, we think about all of that, and there are just those times when we kind of go, yeah, uh, we probably ought to talk to God just in case there's something to all of this. I'm not sure it's really biblical saving faith. I think it's more of a superstitious uh, better, better talk to the big guy, maybe we would say, the man upstairs or something like that, just in case there is something to this. Um, when, whenever we think about these kind of things, we have a, a view of God in our culture that he's not really all that forceful, he's not really all that sovereign, he's not really all that powerful, unless we need him to be, and then we can give him permission to be powerful. We can give him permission to work miracles. We can give ourselves permission even to talk to him and kind of throw him a bone every once in a while. That's kind of the way the culture goes. How different does this psalm present God as opposed to most of what you see on the media or you hear from people who 
talk about God. How different is this from what most people think? And so whenever the Lord returns, the idea is there's going to be a tremendous surprise because in the book of Revelation, at the battle of Armageddon, the kings of the earth are gathered to fight each other. And the beast, the Antichrist, is fighting for his kingdom and for his life against other kings and other nations. But then the Lord comes and splits the sky, and all of a sudden, all of those kings and nations that were fighting each other are going to turn together to fight against the Lord. Talk about an exercise in futility. Well, why would they fight against the Lord? Well, you've heard the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's the way those kings are going to be. They're going to, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've got to fight against him. And they join together and they become allies against the Lord Jesus Christ. So, does the world see, if they ever would acknowledge the second coming of the Lord, how would they think about it? Candy canes and lollipops and everything's great and I can be whatever gender I want and I can live any way I want because God is tolerant, isn't he? And he loves everybody exactly the same and he would never get in my way of being the fullest expression of who I am. I got a feeling that's not much of an exaggeration, is it? And so when they read verses like this, what do you suppose they think? And how does it hit them? And uh, what do they do with it? Probably just reject it, reinterpret it, or just say, I could never worship a God like that, as if there was an alternative, as if, if you don't like this God, find yourself another God. This is not Carvana, where you go up to the machine, and if you don't want a Mustang, you can get an SUV and you know, that type of thing. We don't have that. This is not a vending machine that you go to and you uh, look and you see, you know, uh, Snickers is there, potato chips are here. Gee, what do I want? And you push the button and get the thing that you want. There's no other God. This is the true and the living God. And David knew him. David was a man after God's own heart. And David is writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So when we think about God, are we giving the world a true picture of God? Do we even have an understanding of who he is as recorded in uh, Holy Scripture? So let's kind of break this down just a little bit. And let's uh, think about this. This would be point number one on the slide that comes up. The Father stands to guarantee his promises to his son. Did you notice in verse 5? The Lord, that's God the Father, just like it was in verse 1, and he is saying something different or doing something different. The Lord is at your right hand. Well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was at the right hand of the Father. Well, he is. That's what it says. But David is seeing something, a cataclysmic event that is going to bring everything to a finality at the end of the age, at the end of the world. And this is the thing where the Father has promised His Son, sit here at my right hand until I make 
your enemies your footstool. So who is going to make the enemies of Christ into the footstool of the Lord? The Father does. And so it's appropriate as we look at this that at the end of the age, the Father stands up to make sure that everything He has promised His Son, I'm going to make your enemies your footstool, would be one of them. And He is the one who executes that judgment. And He is the one that sets everything into motion and makes sure everything is there so that His beloved Son receives all of the glory that He deserves, that He receives the kingdom that he deserves and that he is the one who is going to be the recipient of all of the father's promises throughout all the ages and so the father goes into action starts all of this and even before the lord jesus returns and fights that battle the father already has everything set up everything in motion everything is put together everything is just right so that the son that he loves receives everything that he has been promised and everything that he deserves. So, you look around at the world about you and you look at the way people are living and you look at the things that they think, you look at the way the government is, you look at the way maybe people even in your family are, and there's a tendency to get discouraged. I understand that. There's a tendency to despair. Who's in charge here anyway, we would say, if we were at a restaurant? Uh, who's the manager here, we might say, if we go to a store and they don't have what we, <coughs> pardon me, what we expected or for the price that we expected it. When things don't go the way we want them to go or expect them to go in everyday life, we look for somebody who is in charge. Well, here's the thing David wants you and me to know. There is one in charge, and he will do everything he has promised to do and everything he has promised and committed to his beloved son, and he'll do it his way, and he'll do it, as we sang earlier, in his time. We're just waiting, and we're just fulfilling our role and doing what we're supposed to do in serving him and glorifying him but it's okay, he is in charge. And he's going to bring everything to a fitting conclusion. Nothing is going to change. Nothing is going to derail him. Nothing is going to throw him off. Nothing is going to make him go to plan B or anything like that. Everything is going the way that it is supposed to do. So give a good sigh and rest in your Lord. If the Lord Jesus is not sitting in heaven going, uh, Father, is this going to work? What are we going to do? Look what's happening down there. Look what those people are doing down there. Oh my goodness, is it? That's not happening, is it? And if Jesus isn't wringing his hands, neither should you. Rest in him and trust in him. Things come up that you don't expect. Things come up that you don't understand. Things come up that don't really make any sense to you. And I've got some really good news. For the plan of the Father to work out, it doesn't have to make sense to you. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to work it out because it's not your job. You just serve Him, glorify Him, honor Him, love Him, and rest in Him. 
and it's going to be okay. The Father stands at this time at Jesus' right hand to execute all of this and put it together. Psalm 16, 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And if that's the way it is for the Lord Jesus, that's the way it is for us as well. So we need our, our faith strengthened and bolstered and we've got to stand strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Okay, number two. The ungodly, arrogant rivals are destroyed. Notice how we phrase that. The ungodly, so these people that are being destroyed so brutally in all of this, they're not good people. They're not those kind of people that you would say, you know, well, why them? They're innocent. There's, there's nothing wrong with them. No, there's no one innocent. There is none righteous, the Bible says. And then what does it say to back that up? No, not one. Not even one, right? And when we think about all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we think about mankind's rebellion against God in everything that we do and everything we think and everything we're trying to pull off, there is a sinister plan. And the enemy, the devil, and his demons are working this plan and they're including human beings in it because there's this idea that we want to rule. We want to be in control. We want to be sovereign. We want to be Lord. In fact, you uh, participate in that even though you uh, would not really want to because every time you lose your temper, what you're really saying is, Lord, I'll be in charge for a while and you're not doing a good enough job dealing with this thing. Let me get fired up and let me deal with it and I'll judge these people the way they deserve to be judged. What are you really saying? Step aside, Lord, let me handle this. I'll be God at least for a little while. Whenever you sin against God and you know what you're doing is wrong, you're basically saying, Lord, I've got this. I don't need you right now and I'll handle this and I'll do it in my way. Because there are those times when we kind of have this little inkling in our mind that God's not doing everything the way he really ought to. Say, how do you know that? Because we ask this one question, we go, why? Why does God allow this? Why doesn't God do something about this? Why is this happening? Why is he allowing this? Well, that's a normal human question. But remember, whenever we act normally, we act sinfully, don't we? Now, if there is a time when you ask the Lord, why is this happening? What can I learn? How can I submit to you better? How can I trust you more? That's a different animal. But what I'm talking about is the tendency that we have to say to God, you better explain yourself, buddy. I don't like what's going on here, and I don't like the way it's affecting me. I don't like the way it's affecting people that I love. So you justify yourself. Well, you're not the judge, and you're not the jury, and you don't have that right, and you don't have that power. And everything the Lord does is righteous, and it is good and it has a purpose to it that we just cannot comprehend and we cannot understand. And so if we're like that and we struggle like that as believers, 
I wonder what's in the heart and in the mind of unbelievers, especially those who think that they have power on this earth. There's nothing worse that can happen than to give an arrogant, sinful human being a degree of power because, boy, they think they've got it and they think they've got it right and they will go against you or anybody that gets in their way, even, of course, God. So the ungodly, arrogant, and I use this word, rivals are destroyed. Because all of these kings that we're reading about, they don't want Christ to rule and reign. They're not believers. And they're like the Jews who said when Jesus is on earth, we will not have this man to be king over us. Boy, what a statement. What a horrible thing to say. And yet that's exactly what's going on. And so they're rivals to him. And so it says he will execute kings, these rival arrogant, ungodly kings, he will execute them in the day of his wrath. And the day of his wrath is another name. You may have read it in other parts of Scripture as uh, the day of the Lord. You may have uh, read about it, the time of Jacob's trouble or something like that. It's a reference to the tribulation period. This is happening at the end of the great tribulation. The rapture takes place. Then there's the seven years of tribulation. And at the end of that, the Lord returns. And that's when these kings come up against the Lord. And that's when he judges them. In verse 6, he shall judge among the nations. There's no court that's going to be able to overthrow his ruling. There's no army that's going to be able to overthrow him there's no coup that's going to be able to rise and take over his throne. This is a done deal. This is what the enemy, the devil, and his demons are so afraid of. They know this better than you do, better than I do, and certainly better than David did. Do you remember when the Lord Jesus would encounter someone who is demon-possessed and the demons would say something like this? What have we to do with you, O Son of God? Why? They're terrified. The book of James says they believe and they tremble. They don't repent. They tremble at all of that. Do you remember a time when they um, said to the Lord Jesus, a, a, a paraphrase, is this the time that we are going to get it? Remember that? Because they know. And they're terrified. And the devil is angry, the Bible says, because he knows his time is short. And so he expresses himself and expresses his anger and pushes sin and pushes perversion and pushes rebellion against God because he knows his time is short and he knows that he's not going to be able to overcome this because, well, it's already written in the book and he knows what the book has to say I wish we did number three nothing will be left undone there have been a few times in my life where I have seen um, a war that was executed in my opinion I'm such a great general and military genius but uh, in my opinion it was executed poorly 
I've talked to enough people that were in Vietnam, including my dad, to kind of uh, get the idea that when you fight a war out of the White House, you're probably not going to have your intended result. In fact, you need to leave it in the hands of generals and those in the field. And when you fight, if you're going to dare send our sons and daughters into war, they ought to be the best equipped with the best plans and they ought to be unleashed so that they can fight the way that they were trained and not with these limited rules of engagement so that they can actually go in there and if they're going to risk their lives my opinion is of course I'm a military brat as you know my opinion is they ought to go over there to win with the best chance to win the war okay that's what's going to happen whenever Jesus comes. Nothing will be held back. Rush Limbaugh used to say that the purpose of the military is number one, to kill people, and number two, to break things. And he said anything else that you add to that dilutes their mission and what they're trying to do. I think he's right on that, that they need to go in there with everything they've got and fight to win and fight to end the war very, very quickly. Okay? Well, that's what's happening here. When the Lord comes back and when he executes judgment on the earth, why does he kill all of these kings? Why is he executing all of these? He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath and he will judge the nations. And then it says, he shall fill the places with dead bodies and he shall execute the heads of many countries. Why is he doing that? Because nothing is going to be left to chance. There's not going to be a terrorist cell that we missed and uh, because we pulled out or because we didn't get them, now they're going to reform and they're going to grow and hatred is going to come and one of these days we have to fight them again. Okay? That's not going to happen. When Jesus takes care of business, he's going to take care of everyone who has taken the mark of the beast, he's going to take care of everyone who is in rebellion against him and he's not going to leave a sleeper cell or something like that uh, out of this because he's going to take care of everything and it is going to be gruesome. It's hard to fathom all of this. It's hard to think about all of this but it is necessary or the Lord wouldn't do it and he is going to do it in a righteous way he's not going to miss anybody and he's also not going to execute somebody who doesn't deserve it or somebody who is innocent and why is he doing all of this well first of all so that Christ may receive the glory that he deserves this earth has not been too kind to Jesus Christ and when Jesus Christ came as the Messiah at his first time born in a stable there was no room for him in the end He's having to run for his life because a despot king, Herod, is so um, afraid and such a rival of this, he's going to kill all of the babies. He would kill the Messiah instead of worshiping him. Oh, he would pretend to worship. Wise men, whenever you find this king, please come and tell me so that I may go and worship him too. Liar. He wanted him dead. And he wanted him taken care of. And this is the heart of the kings of the earth. You see it in Herod. 
And so when we find this, the Lord is going to execute judgment, not on the innocent people who didn't know any better, but upon those who were coming against him and those who would be his rivals, those who would fight against him. And he's going to take care of business in all of this. Now, David would understand this because they were... Uh, a much more, I guess we would say, brutal society than we were. And David didn't hesitate to execute his enemies. And it was an expected thing in Israel and other nations like that. I mean, after all, you go to Assyria and you would find skulls of dead people piled up by the gates. We wouldn't tolerate that kind of stuff today. But they did that because they said, watch your step, you mess up. This will be you. They would leave dead bodies in pails and uh, leave them out there so that they're, as they, they would rot in publicly so that you would know don't go against the government. They would even do that in the day of Jesus because it was common whenever they crucified somebody, they didn't take them down unless there was pressure like there was when Jesus was crucified because there was a Sabbath coming up. Typically, they left them there and the Jews were disgusted by all of it. In fact, it says in the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the Romans would leave them hanging until they fell off, and then they would bury them in a mass grave, not a tomb like Jesus was buried in. They were buried in a mass grave and forgotten about. No one even wanted to claim the body. And incidentally, that's why Pilate was so surprised and Jews were so surprised that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea wanted to claim the body because typically in those days, nobody wanted the body of a criminal. That's the world they lived in. We sanitize everything, don't we? And uh, they lived and death was an everyday part of their life, dying from military conflict, dying from diseases, dying from, well, they didn't even know what they were dying from. And uh, yet we don't really see all of that. Everybody dies, but we kind of hide it. We sanitize it. We don't see it in the same way. Well, David is writing here with a note of triumph and victory. This king is coming from God, and he is going to wipe out all of the enemies of Israel, the enemies of God, these Gentile nations that would oppose him. And it's going to be so thorough that the bodies are going to be stacked up in a gruesome way. But David would say, yay, that's victory. That's conquering. That's what it really takes to do this. Which brings us to point number four. The new king, and we're talking about Jesus here, the new king will be empowered, strong, and unencumbered. Now, this is a big deal to come and conquer these nations. Is Jesus going to be tired when he does that? Sometimes, uh, well, my dad told me that when he was in the Marine Corps in the Korean War, that one of the things the Marines would always do whenever they took a hill or, or took something from the enemy, they immediately set up a hasty defense. Why'd they do that? Because those that they conquered knew that the best time to attack is after you've tasted victory. You tend to get arrogant. You tend to let down. Boy, we beat them, didn't we? Man, isn't that great? And then they attack and sometimes they can take it back. And so can you imagine... 
Here comes the Lord Jesus, and he splits that eastern sky, and he comes with his armies, which will be us, riding on white horses following him, and he defeats the beast and the false prophet, and he defeats all of those who have taken the mark of the beast and all of those who would be rivals to him. Now, can you imagine what they would do if they saw the new king and he was, oh, oh, man, that was, oh, that was a rough one. Because there's still going to be people on earth that are going to rebel against him. Did you know that? At the end of the thousand year reign, the devil's going to be let loose and he's going to stir up a rebellion against the Lord. And so the Bible says here that when this king comes, he's going to drink from a brook and he's going to be refreshed. And he's going to be strong. He's not going to be slouching in the saddle. None of his weapons are going to be too heavy for him. He's not going to be tired. He's not going to be nodding off. In fact, it says his head is lifted up in defiance to all of his enemies, watching all of them. And showing them, I am in charge here. And there is no sense of trying to come against me. And so it says, therefore, he shall lift up the head. This powerful, strong, refreshed uh, king is ready to take the throne and execute judgment wherever it must be executed. Because he's going to rule with that rod of iron. Okay? You want to read a New Testament passage about this? Turn to Revelation 19. And we'll just read about it. And John saw this and wrote it down for us. Very, very similar to what David wrote in this same thing. But more information. Look at Revelation 19.11. Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him, the white horse was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the word of God. Makes you think of John chapter 1, doesn't it? Verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, that's us, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, plural. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He means business. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. Here it is. King of kings and Lord of lords. Just so you don't make a mistake about who he is and why he's there. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together. 
for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings. See how similar this sounds? And the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people. Free and slave, small and great. Verse 19, And I saw the beast, the ultimate rebel, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him, Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were filled, were, pardon me, were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Can you imagine that? And yet David would say, Oh, don't despair over that. Rejoice. This is the Lord's triumph. It's a mighty victory that he is going to win. And he is going to thoroughly win over all of his enemies. Frederick Farrar, a 19th century British theologian, told of a conversation that he had with Queen Victoria after she had heard one of her chaplains preach on Christ's second coming. She said, Oh, Dr. Farrar, how I wish that the Lord would come during my lifetime. When he asked her why she desired this, she replied, Ready for this? Because I would love to lay my crown at his blessed feet in reverent adoration. What a difference. Because those kings that are going to be destroyed are not like Victoria, submissive before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They're the arrogant ones who want to destroy him and want to destroy his people and overthrow his kingdom and they want to rule and reign in his place. And that's why the Lord destroys them and he does it in righteousness because he knows their thoughts, he knows their intent, and he knows their heart. But what a difference if he were to come and find somebody like Victoria who says when he splits the eastern sky, my crown is yours. You are the one who rules. And those are the ones that are going to be spared. Those are the ones who are going to be entering the kingdom of God. Those who didn't take the mark of the beast. Those who didn't live for themselves. Those who do not defy the Lord. Those who do not worship the beast or his image but the ones that are waiting for his return so that they can bow at his feet. And there'll be some kings that will do that. There'll be other people that will do that who didn't take the mark of the beast and they will enter the kingdom of God. And you and I will be there with him to enter the kingdom of God and participate in the victory that the Lord Jesus has. And it will be a great, grand, glorious all-consuming victory 
and the Lord will be praised as he deserves and will be submitted to as he should be. And for the first time on earth since Adam and Eve, everything will be set right for the glory of our King. Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. The day is coming. Don't despair. Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, tonight as we think about all of this, what a grand and glorious thing. And it's already accomplished in your mind. It's not even up for debate. And no wonder the devil fears and trembles. But forgive us, Lord, when we look at this world and we look at everything around us and we tremble and our hearts grow weary and weak and our soul faints within us. How could this be happening? How much worse could the world get? What in the world is going on? Who's in charge here? I pray tonight we are solid in our understanding. Jesus is Lord. Jesus rules. The Word of God is true. Everything promised will be accomplished because of the Word of our Father. Let us rest in you. And let us also, as we think about these horrible events, may we be motivated to tell other people about Jesus. To be even so bold as to tell them, I love you, I'm concerned about you. And if you were to die in your sleep tonight, you would not go to heaven, but you would be in hell. And I don't want that to happen. And we could plead with them to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that we would pray for the lost, that we would be concerned about the lost, because this is the gospel, the only hope that these people have to not be in what we've described tonight. Help us, Lord, to serve you, to honor you, to be ambassadors for you, to proclaim you, and to love you with all of our hearts, and to fear you more than we fear man, and help us to be like Victoria, where we want to take whatever crown we may have, whatever authority we may have, whatever we may own, and we long for the day when we can lay it all at your feet. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Hope that